And good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 3. Now for the last couple of weeks in our study in John's Gospel, we have been looking at chapter 3, and in particular the first 21 verses, which many have called one of the greatest sections in the Bible. And uh, it's a great section because in it Jesus tells a very religious man named Nicodemus that all of his religious works are never going to get him into heaven. Now, that's a pretty big misconception that is, well, a lot of people in our country are harboring under. They believe that if they go to church enough times and uh, do good works, keep the sacraments, feast days, uh, holy days, uh, light candles, prayer rosaries, whatever, they believe that's going to earn them a place in heaven. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were, Pharisees were ultra-Orthodox, a uh, sect of Judaism. And they believed in keeping God's law down to the minutest detail. So they were very big into works. In fact, they were all about doing religious works, and they believed they were, that was going to get them into heaven. But Jesus does Nicodemus a favor, but all people who are placing their trust in their religion to get them into heaven, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that his works will never get him into heaven, and then proceeds to tell him the only way that he and every else, everyone else in the world can be saved and enter into heaven. Now, we could, as we said last week, it's, you know, God's word is incredible. And there are some scriptures that seem to just transcend the immediate. And John 3.16, excuse me, uh, this section in, in John's gospel is one of those. We could actually broaden the impact of this conversation by saying that this section of scripture is great because in reality it's a conversation between God and mankind on the most important subject of life which is eternal life nothing more important than that now I've divided the first 21 verses of John 3 this way the confused seeker verses 1 to 12 which we've already looked at focusing on Nicodemus then the condescending savior as one who came down who came low, left his exalted place in heaven to come to the earth. He, he bowed down to where we were. He condescended. The condescending Savior, verses 13 to 16. And then the condemned sinner, verses 17 to 21. Now last week, we got as far as verse 15, saving verse 16 for this morning. So let's read it. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I don't know if you've ever bothered to count the words in John 3.16. There's 25 words in the English. Just 25. And yet, guys, so little has never communicated so much, I think, in the history of the world as John 3.16. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. Another pastor said of the 31,373 verses in the Bible, this one is perhaps the greatest, the most loved, and the one used most often in evangelism. Now, because this verse is one of the most, if not the most beloved verses in the Bible, well... The sermons pastors had preached on it over the centuries could literally fill the Library of Congress. Okay, um, And as I was scanning several dozen of them, written by, excuse me, preached by numerous people, 
Uh, some of them, you know, way back, all right? Some of them still alive. But as I was kind of perusing these uh, sermons on John 3.16, it became very uh, apparent that we could approach this verse from many different perspectives, emphasizing any one of a number of main thoughts to develop into a message. Now, you know me, okay? I tend to like to dig in there and really kind of go crazy and things and, and, and spend a lot of time mining the, the gold that's in these passages, especially a verse like John 3.16. And some of these guys were very intricate in the way they dealt with it. Others were very simple. And as I'm, you know, as I'm ready to really get, you know, do a, like a five-part series on John 3.16, right? now. calm down. I didn't. Uh... The Holy Spirit just began to work in my heart and uh, laid on my heart not to approach this in a super analytical way, this verse, but just to keep it simple. I mean, after all, isn't that what the Holy Spirit did when he gave us the verse? He took some of the greatest truths in the Bible and condensed them down into a single verse that even a child could understand, <laughs> while at the same time, the greatest theologians and, and uh, deep thinkers of the Christian faith have studied this verse for centuries and have barely scratched the surface of the truth that God has uh, included in this one verse. So I just want to take a very simple approach. But let me, before we actually get started, let me just stop and say one more time that John th chapter 3, and primarily the first 16 verses basically revolve around two great must statements by Jesus. These must statements are found in verses 7 and then verse 14. In verse 7, Jesus said to Nicodemus, a very religious man who wanted to know how he could get into the kingdom, Jesus said, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. We'll call that the must of the sinner. How does a sinner get into heaven? They must be born again. And notice the definitive nature of Jesus' statements. He didn't say, well, they should, get, they should be born again. You know, not required, but it's a good thing. It's a good idea. You must be born again. And then in verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, the must of the Savior. And together, guys, they lead up to and climax in the single greatest message of love and hope ever given to mankind, John 3, 16. Now, I just want to divide this verse into four parts. Very simple. Okay, just take it and divide it up into four parts. The first one we'll look at is the first few words that we want to look at, for God so loved the world. Now, look, the fact that God loves doesn't shock us. We know as Christians that that's his nature. In fact, John who also gave us, the, gave us three epistles. Uh, in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 8, he said, look, God doesn't just love a lot, which is true. He is love. He is love. It is in God's nature to love. So that God loves is not shocking. <laughs> the shocking thing isn't that he loves. The shocking thing is the thing that's loved or the object of God's love, which in this context is the world. Now look, when the New Testament talks about the world, it's not talking about the planet Earth or nature, all right? It's often used to denote the world of fallen sinners, those who have been born in Adam. We've all been born in Adam. That's physical birth, right? We're all descendants of Adam. And when Adam blew it in the Garden of Eden, he blew it for all of us. He fell, and every one of his descendants after him would be born into this world fallen sin sinners with a sin nature that wants to do its own thing, 
We are rebels at heart. Not all of us are the same kind of rebels or the same depth of rebellion as the other, but we're all rebels at heart. We all want to do what we want to do. Say, is that wrong? Well, the Bible says that you want to be saved, you've got to give your life to Jesus. Do what he wants. Okay, we'll talk about that more as we go. But um, we were all, we, this is a world of fallen sinners, a world of rebels. And as such, there is nothing lovable about rebels that should cause God to love us. Sometimes people think, well, God loves me because I'm kind of cute and cuddly and lovable. Aren't I lovable? I mean, you know, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice person. Sure God loves me. Why wouldn't he love me? You know? But that's not true. God looks at the heart. And in the heart of all of us, we are rebels. Now, the good news is God loves rebels. God loves rebels. Okay, that's, that's the good news. But understand that God loved us in spite of us, not because of us. And he didn't just love us. What does it say? He so loved us. That's huge. You say, well, God loves you. Okay, well, maybe he loves me a little bit. No, no, he so loves you. You know, Billy Graham, whom many consider to have been the greatest evangelist that ever lived, died a few weeks ago, as you know. As I watched the documentary on his life, what struck me was how over the course of his 60-plus years of ministry, he always kept his message simple. If you've ever watched the Billy Graham crusade, this was a smart man. He graduated Bible college and seminary. He could have been very deep in his, he was a smart guy. He could have been very deep in the way he preached. A lot of preachers enjoy that. Makes them feel very important, you know. You know, it's like, true story. And a pastor confessed this to us at a pastor's conference. I used to love to use big words and throw around theological phrases and and then one day as he's out by the, down by the door, as people are filing out, you know, service was over, uh, one of the women in his church just took him by the hand and said, Pastor, I just loved your sermon. I didn't understand most of it, but I, I loved your sermon. And you know, God used that to touch this guy. And it's not about you showing off your vocabulary or your theological knowledge. It's about connecting with the people. Billy Graham always did that. I'm amazed at how he was able to preach in a way that it was never so deep or super intellectual that the average person couldn't connect with it, couldn't understand it. Instead, Dr. Graham kept it simple by choosing to emphasize the love of God for lost sinners and how that no one, listen, no one, no matter how far from God they are or how steeped in sin they might be, was beyond the love of God to save them. And guys, that's the message I want to present this morning. Again, the Lord just wanted me to keep it simple. The message I want to present to you this morning is that God loves you. Now, I know a lot of you. I, a lot of, I, those of you I know, I know you're saved. There's some faces I don't recognize. And let me just say this to you. If, you. if you don't already know it, God loves you. And he doesn't just love you a little bit. He so loves you. And regardless of the way you're living... I'm not justifying that. I'm not saying it's a, it's a small thing to be living in open rebellion against God, living with your boyfriend, girlfriend, or doing whatever you're doing. I'm just saying those are not a barrier from God saving you. Because God loves you. He knows what you're involved in. He knows everything about you. And he is still 
extending his hand to you and saying, come to me. I love you. I want to save you. Now, guys, when you realize that God loves this world knowing what is in man. Remember, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know what's in their own heart? God said, I know the heart. I know everything in your heart. In, in Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus said, Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Paul the Apostle wrote a little list of what's in the heart of unbelievers. In Romans 1, 29-31, I'll read it to you. Unbelievers being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. You have to get he could have gone all day. He had to stop somewhere. Now look. Not every person has all that stuff going on in their heart, but collectively, the human race, this is what's in the heart of man. And when you realize that God knows the heart, he knows everything inside a person's heart and still loves them and wants to save them, that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? When you think about when it says, God so loved this fallen world full of sinners is the idea. Wow. God must really love. He, he does. He is. But listen, guys, as beautiful as God's love for sinners is, and regardless of how much because of that love he wants to save them, understand that God's love can't save you. Now that comes as a shock to most people. Because they believe because God is love, that's how they get into heaven. God's love, okay? Um, and they believe because God is love, he will pretty much let everyone into heaven. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But definitely let them into heaven. Because God loves, he's got to love, right? He wouldn't send people to hell, would he? Unless you're the worst sinner possible, murderers and, and whatever, rapists and things. Otherwise, the rest of us are pretty good. We'll, we're going to get in because God's love. When I tell them, do you realize that God's love can't save you? It's almost like I'm speaking blasphemy. I say, God's love has never saved anybody. All God's love can do is provide a way by which you might be saved, which is exactly what he did, which brings us, well, let me just back up and say this. He provided a way, that's what his love did, provided a way by which people might be saved, and of course, that way that he provided was Jesus Christ, his son, and his death on the cross. And that brings us to our second main point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Guys, it cost the Father, His only begotten Son, to be our substitute and sacrifice. The term only begotten in the Greek is monogenes. And um, it's a word that means that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in a totally different way than you and I become sons and daughters of God when we exercise faith in Christ and are born again. The Bible says we're sons. In fact, girls, you're called sons of God too. Because we're all equal. Uh, in, in Jewish culture, the boys were always looked upon as better than the girls. God says, in my kingdom, you're all sons. You're all sons. So he doesn't make a distinction. But 
When we talk about being sons of God as Christians, it's not the same when it says that Jesus was or is the Son of God. Jesus' sonship is unique, one of a kind, primarily because he's eternal. He is the same essence with the Father and the Spirit because together they are all one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But also, this is very important, guys, very important. He is the Son of God also in the sense that he had an earthly mother, Mary, but he didn't have an earthly father. God the Father was his father, which meant the sin of Adam, original sin, was not transferred onto Jesus when he was born. Because all of us as descendants of Adam, which is what physical birth is all about, when we were born into this world, we received the fallen nature that Adam you know, received when he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. And because of it, we're all born sinners. But Jesus didn't have an earthly father. Therefore, original sin wasn't transferred or to him or passed down upon him. Now, that's significant because if he would have had an earthly father, he would have been born a fallen sinner like the rest of us, which, guys, is a moot point because God could never be born a sinner. He would cease being God, okay? I'm just saying hypothetically, if Jesus had an earthly father then original sin would have passed into his soul and he would have been a fallen sinner. And guess what? He couldn't have died for us because sinners can't die for sinners. That's why he had to be virgin born, right? Because the sin, sin nature passes down from the father to the children. In Adam all die, not in Eve. Didn't pass down through our mothers. It passed down through our father. You say, why is that? I don't ask God. All as I know is the Bible teaches that sin nature passed from Adam to every father that has ever lived, including our fathers, and that was passed to us. And when we father children, we pass it on to them. By Jesus being virgin born, well, he could be one of us, a true human being, and yet without sin. Now, that was obviously very important because the only way Jesus could have died for us uh, in our place as our substitute would be if he was sinless, the innocent dying for the guilty. And that's why he had to be virgin born. Of course, you all know 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, which says for, I'm just going to paraphrase, for the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And guys, just remember one more time, Jesus didn't die for his friends, okay, for those who loved him. He died for his enemies, for rebels. I was telling first service that many years ago, I think it was the first year we were at church, um, there was a, uh, a, a skating rink uh, in town somewhere here. And um, I think it might have been Christian-owned because they had uh, a Christian skate night like every Friday, something like that. And so we would go, and they played Christian music. It was a lot of fun, you know, a good time of fellowship. And uh, because we went so much, the uh, manager got to know us. And then, I think it was our first New Year's Eve, first year we were at church, the Christian radio station in town wanted to broadcast 
from the skating rink, this Christian service, you know, and leading up to the new year, and uh, you're going to do the whole night from on the radio uh, from this Christian skating rink, and they wanted to end the night or bring in the new year with communion, and so they wanted a pastor to come and say a few words and then lead everyone in communion. Well, because the manager knew, knew me, he called me and hooked me up at the radio station, so they, they wanted me to come. So I went there, and uh, after, you know, after I gave a, a, a little talk, okay, we had communion, and it was very nice. But during the talk, and I'm brand new in ministry, right? Um, so I gave a little talk, and I think during the talk, I mentioned how that, of course, we're going to celebrate communion, which uh, remembers Jesus' death on the cross for us and so on, that we could be one with him. And as I'm talking, you know, I'm trying to drive the, make it personal, you know, and, you know, and, and, you know, and who would die for you, all right? I might have even said, and, and which one of your friends would, would die for you? And then I made my point, why not? After communion, a young guy came up, introduced himself, his name was Vince, and told me that he was a gangbanger. He belonged to a gang in town. And he said, you know, when you said what friends do you have that would die for you, I thought, my friends. Because we would die for each other. This gang is our family. We would die for one another, Okay. And you know, as a young pastor, I really had never heard that before. And I honestly didn't know how to respond to that. I should have known. I didn't. And so I just, you know, I just, we talked a little while longer and then I left. And on the way home, I prayed. I said, Lord, what about this? I mean, he makes a good point. I mean, uh, you know, he's got friends that would die for him. And I'm assuming he's telling the truth. He's got friends that would die for him, Lord. I mean, you know, what, what do I say to a person like that? And, you know, have you ever experienced when the Lord speaks to you in your heart? Not audible, but almost, it's that clear? As I'm pondering this and praying to the Lord, the Lord said to me very clearly, Phil, I didn't die for my friends. I died for my enemies. And, wow, did that settle that issue. I've never forgotten that. And, of course, Scripture teaches it. But as a young pastor, I really hadn't thought about that. Now look at me. Listen to me. Even after we get saved, all right, the devil is always trying to whisper. He tries to tempt us with stuff, right? Maybe get us back into some of the old habits, the smoking, the drinking, the, the uh, drugs of some kind, or whatever it might be, some kind of a sexual dalliance or something. And of course, after he tempts you to do those things and you fall into them, then he whispers in your ear that you're a lousy Christian, God doesn't love you anymore. And we listen to that, don't we? We're feeling guilty and then condemned. We often listen to that. If the devil tries to pull that with you, can I just remind you that God never did love you because you were worthy or lovable. He first loved you when you were yet his enemies, sinners. And if he loved you so much then before you were ever his child that he gave his son to die for you, what do you think happens now that he, you're his child? You think he's going to disown you now? You don't think God knew everything you were going to commit before he ever called you? Yes, but I, I, I just think like he's going to throw me out of the family because I'm just not measuring up anymore. 
Let me tell you something. When my kids were little, of course, any father wants to bless their kids, right? I wanted to bless my kids. I wanted to take them out for ice cream, do nice things for them because I love them. Of course, sometimes they were rebellious and they violated the family rules and I had to punish them. And part of that was we don't go out for ice cream tonight or whatever it might be, right? Now, I only withheld blessings from them. At no time did I ever say, pack your bags and get out. You're not, you're not my, my son anymore. You're not my daughter anymore. No, because that's not the nature of love. God says, look, once you belong to me, you're, you're mine forever. I'm never going to let you go. I'm never going to leave you and forsake you. Now, if you don't obey me, there are times when I can't bless you the way I want. But know this, I will never, I will never th throw you out of the family. You are mine forever. But every time Satan tries to whisper in your ear that lie, I want you to turn to Romans 5. Let's read it together. And let me read to you Romans 5, verses 6 to 8 out of the NLT. Where Paul said, when we were utterly helpless, before we got saved, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Now look, just because Jesus died for all, and John tells us that clearly in his first epistle, chapter 2, he was the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus died for all, but that doesn't mean all will be automatically saved and go to heaven just because Jesus died for them. Those that believe that embrace a doctrine called universalism. Universalism basically teaches that in the end, pretty much universally, everyone goes to heaven. Okay, guess why? Because God's love. Again, going back to the love of God, okay? God's love, I mean, he talks tough. Like the parent who's always, you know, talking tough to the kid, but in the end, never really does anything, doesn't discipline, that kind of thing. God talks tough to get us in line. You know, if you don't knock it off, you know, you're, you're going to go to hell. But he never sends anybody to hell. He's a, he's a God of love. Even Satan gets into heaven at the end, they, they think. Many of them. Even the devil, when it's all said and done, goes to heaven. Nobody goes to hell, all right? Guys, I'd like to believe that. It's not true. It's not true. Because if it was true, what's the point of evangelism? What's the point of sending missionaries over to the mission field where they can be martyred for their faith? If in the end everyone goes to heaven, what's the point? Okay? And yet the Bible says that those are cast into the lake of fire, their smoke or their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Not, not everybody is universally, in fact, I wanted to save that for another, but hang on to that. Okay, I'll go back to it. Um, but the Bible teaches that 
the world is condemned. We'll get into this more next week, uh, uh, in a couple weeks. The world is condemned. It's going to hell. And Jesus entered this world on a search and rescue mission. If it were not true, if universalism was really true, again, what's the point? But look, God has a part in our salvation. But we also have a part. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we have a part in securing our salvation or purchasing our salvation. That's all God. When I say we have a part, I'm simply saying that Jesus Christ died in the cross, which allowed us to be saved if we want to be saved. But we have to receive that gift he's offering to us. The gift he bought and paid for with his own blood, the gift that he's extending to us, it's called eternal life. We have to receive it if we are going to be saved and go to heaven. And guys, that leads us to our third main point, that whoever believes in him, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Great, that's God's part. That whoever believes in him, that's our part. That's our part. God did all the work necessary for us to be saved. But to actually be forgiven for our sins and go to heaven someday, we must do our part and receive God's gift by faith. Turn to Ephesians 2. And I know you know these, but again, we're just keeping it simple. So we're going to tread on some familiar ground. Of course, Paul said in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 8, for by what? Grace, not by love. Not by love. By grace, God, for God so loved the world that he saved us by grace. Not by his love. Love is awesome. Love uh, caused him to act and to, to give his son that we might be saved. It's all by grace. Grace means a gift. Charis in the Greek, a gift. Okay, something we, we don't deserve. For by grace you have been saved, that's God's part, through faith, that's our part. And that not of yourselves, it, salvation, is the gift of God, not the result of our works, lest any should boast. Guys, you don't earn a gift. If somebody offers you a gift, you receive it and say thank you. You don't earn it. Salvation, eternal life, is not something we work for and earn. God wants us to know very clearly it is a free gift that he is offering to us because he didn't want us up in heaven boasting how much we deserve to be there if it was dependent on us, right? I mean, come on, your thumbs underneath the suspenders. Boy, I really deserve to be here. You don't know how many candles I lit down on the earth there. How many times I went to church and worked in the food pantry and whatever. I really deserve to be, oh, man. How nauseating. God says, no, 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 no. You did nothing. The only thing that you supplied towards your salvation was the sin. Okay? Hot shot. You know? I did everything. I did it all. The work of saving you. Okay? But then John chapter 1. Verse 12. But as many as received him, Jesus... To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his 
name. And guys, believing and receiving are like flip sides of the same coin. Okay? One leads to the other. They go hand in hand. When you believe in Jesus, the idea is you're believing in him and receiving him is the idea. But notice how in this one verse, John breaks it down into two parts and so we get a better look at it. But really, it's all about exercising saving faith. We believe and we receive. Okay? Because if you really believe, really do, in Jesus and what he did, you're going to receive him. Okay? I mean, I can make a case that says, look, you may say you believe in him. But if you don't receive him as your Lord and Savior, you really don't believe in him. Okay? Not the way saving faith works, at least. Now, I know that there are some who would hear me say these things that would have a hard time believing that God still wanted them in heaven with him. Because of the way I'm living or have lived, uh, I don't think, preacher, God wants me. Uh, I know you talk about God loves the whole world, but I think he loves the whole world but me. Isn't that common? We, we stick, you know, a little, you know, I love everybody but you, Harry, or you, Sally, or whatever it might be, right? Didn't they meet at one time? But okay. Um, but the only way I can assure you that God wants you in heaven is to turn to his word and show him what he said on the subject. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Paul said, God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, desires all men and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Everybody in this world. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, uh, not willing that any should perish in hell, but that all should come to repentance. The idea is repentance, salvation, right? Look, again, even though God is offering salvation to everyone, not everyone is going to be saved. But that's not God's fault. That's not God's fault. It's not that God doesn't want everyone to be saved. Jesus died for the sins of all. The reason that all people won't be saved is because many don't want to be saved. Or we could say, well, they wouldn't mind being saved if they can be saved on their terms. If I can live the life I want to live, do what I want to do right now and still go to heaven, I'm in. Where do I sign? But God's not making that offer. Okay? God's not offering salvation on their terms. And the reason they don't want to receive Christ, they don't want to repent. They want to give up control of their life doing their own thing. But I want you to notice, again, that the invitation to be saved is not limited to any one group. As some say, well, it only applies to the elect. All right? God only loves the world of the elect. He could have said that. doesn't say that in my Bible. It says God loves the world. Okay? And when John wrote his first epistle and used the term the world, I challenge you to see how many times it was connected to the unbelieving world. Not the world of the elect, but the world in general. Because God loves that world, a world full of sinners, okay? This invitation is not limited to any one group like the elect or only for nice people. God so loved nice people that he's inviting them to come to heaven. 
the, the invitation doesn't say, well, God, you know, loves the world except if you smoke, drink, uh, have a record, that kind of thing. Then don't bother applying. No, it's an open, universal invitation to the people of this world that God so loves to come to Jesus if they desire to be saved and adopted into his family. And Jesus said, if you come to me, I will in no way cast you out. Nobody who comes to Jesus will hear him say, no, I checked the list. You're not one of the elect. I'm sorry. You can't come in to the kingdom. I will cast none out. I will turn nobody away who wants to accept me and be saved. And that's the, the message this morning. God is extending his arms to the human race. And he is saying, look, my son died for all of you. Anyone who wants to come to my son and receive him as Savior, I will accept you into my family. Not only will you not go to hell, you'll come into heaven someday and live with me in my kingdom as my child forever. That's pretty spectacular. I love how Paul stated it in Romans 10, verses 11 to 13. In fact, why don't you turn there quickly as we bring this to a close. I love how Paul kept repeating himself, the universal invitation, because he didn't want anybody to be confused, although many are. Romans 10, verse 11, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And again, I don't see any caveats there. I don't see any exceptions listed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the last phrase. Should not perish but have everlasting life. Guys, once a person puts their faith in Jesus... They pass from death to life, from death, judgment, to eternal life. And I believe it's a one-way door. I believe once you pass from death to life, or in other words, once, when you are born again into the family of God by receiving Christ, I mean, I don't know how you can get unborn. I don't believe you can walk through the door from death to life and then walk back from life to death. Because the life God gives is what? Eternal. By its very nature, it's life that lasts forever. So once you have it, you have it forever. And Jesus told us in John 5, 24, whoever believes in me shall have everlasting life. And they will pass from judgment into life, from death to into life. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus makes the statement in verse 36, who believes in the son has ever he who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, the judgment of God abides on him, on her. But he who believes in the son has everlasting life by its very nature, it's life that lasts forever.
Now, I know that there are those who don't believe. They believe heaven is forever, but not hell. Okay, they, they, they believe heaven is forever, but not hell. Okay, um, that's called uh, when a person, they, they believe, is cast into the lake of fire into hell. As soon as they hit the lake of fire, they burn up and go out of existence. That's called annihilationism. That also was unbiblical. Okay, that also was unbiblical. As I quoted you earlier, I meant to save it for this place. I would love to teach that people don't, um, are not tormented forever in hell. That once they are cast into hell, they burn up and go out of existence. But the Bible says, I think it was in Revelation 14, that those who are sent to hell, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Jesus said in John, excuse me, Mark 10, I believe, hell is a place where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. In other words, it's eternal. In fact, in Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. Matthew 25, 46, and he says, these will go away into everlasting punishment, hell, but the righteous into eternal life. The word everlasting and eternal in the Greek are the same word. So if heaven is eternal, as we read here, so is hell eternal. But you don't have to worry about hell if you receive Christ. You know, one pastor put it this way. He said, and I quote, Although I know it is somewhat coincidental, I find it interesting that in our English translation of this verse, John 3.16, the middle word is son, S-O-N. It is no coincidence, however, that those who have experienced God's presence most powerfully are those who have made the Son the center of their lives. Just as Jesus is the center of the greatest verse in all Scripture, He must be central to our hearts and lives if they are to have meaning, purpose, and impact. This means that any person, pursuit, or passion in my life that cannot be centered on Jesus Christ, listen, has no place in my life, end quote. And I wish 21st century American Christians really believe that. They might say they do, but I think for the most part, the way they're living is showing. Jesus is not the center of their life. He's a, an, an additive. He's like the frosting on the cake of life. Adds a little sweetness, but it's not the substance. He orbits around their life, but they're the center still. He must be the center. And so, guys, that's just a brief look at one of the greatest, if not the greatest, verses in the Bible. Let me just ask you as we close. When you read John 3.16, what goes through your mind? I mean, do you, does it still bring a smile to your face and cause your heart to beat just a little faster? I mean, do you cherish every word rejoicing in its truth? Or do you kind of mindlessly read it because you want to get through your devotions and you say, just kind of skim over it. You've, you've read it so many times. You've heard it so many times. You, you know it by heart. You've memorized it. So you just kind of race over it, not really thinking about it because you've heard it so many times. It really has kind of lost its impact on you. We're all in danger of doing that, aren't we? When you get familiar with something or someone, this is a big thing in marriage. People that have been married for a long time, they can become familiar with each other, and they begin to take each other for granted. What you're very familiar with, you don't really appreciate too much. Um, 
we have to fight the urge to become uh, where where the where this truth the truth of God's word becomes so familiar they lose their impact. I know I know many young people. I've been reading articles lately about how the young generation uh, they're not going to church. This is the least church generation in American history. They're not going to church, and um, most of them don't believe in God, let alone heaven, hell, eternal life. All they're concerned about, for the most part, is this life. They're very hedonistic and uh, materialistic, living for the moment. And so when you share John 3.16, you know, with them, um, and the gift of eternal life that God is offering to you. You notice how there's like a blank stare in many of their faces or eyes? It's like you're talking a different language. They are so not connecting with you. You're talking to spiritual things, and they are people of the earth. All they are worried about is the things of earth. And all, you can see it in their eyes. All they want you to do is finish your little presentation and leave them alone. That's sad because God is offering them the greatest gift mankind has ever been offered. But let me tell you something. If a gift's going to benefit you, you have to receive it. God offers people eternal life, salvation. But when they don't receive it, well, it's, as like, it's like he never offered it in the first place. I'm convinced the reason that hell is going to be a place of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth for all eternity is because for all eternity, there will be, those uh, there will be suffering under the weight of knowing that they didn't have to be there. They didn't have to be in hell. God, they, they, they remember how people told them God loved them, you know. I believe they're going to they're gonna remember every Bible presentation that was ever given, every time anyone presented the gospel. I don't think they're going to ever forget that's part of the torment. Knowing that I didn't have to be here. That God loved me. What was I thinking? Why didn't I really ponder that? That I rejected the greatest gift in the universe, and here I am in this horrible place that I can never leave. Wow. No wonder there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Forever and ever. Look. You have hope. It's not too late. If you're here this morning, and you are, of course, but if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, there is still time. There's still hope. As long as you're alive on this earth, you have time to receive Christ. And all I can do is impress upon you the urgency, because tomorrow is not guaranteed to anybody, the Bible says. That's why today is the day of salvation. Can I encourage you to think? And one of the things Satan does he gets us so busy with our routines that we don't stop to ask ourselves the really important questions in life, which is, why am I here? What is life really all about? I know it's going to be more than making money and buying stuff and partying. What is life really all about? And most importantly, what happens to me when I die? If Satan can keep you so busy you never ask yourself those questions, you'll die in your sins, and then it's too late to wrestle with it then. So I just want to encourage you guys, if you don't, have never made a commitment to Christ, why well, go to church? I'm not talking about going to church. I was raised in church, great. 
Uh, it doesn't matter. What are you going to do with Christ right now that you're old enough to make a decision and a commitment to him? Today is the day of salvation. God is extending his arms to you saying, I love you. Come to me. Before it's too late, come to me. I want to save you. May God give you grace to make the right decision. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Of course, your word is truth. We thank you, dear Lord, for, well, for loving us like you do. So much that you gave your only begotten son. And Jesus, we know that you were a willing sacrifice because you loved us too. And Lord, we just pray for everybody in this room or everybody who's going to hear this, uh, you know, over the internet or radio or whatever, that Lord, you'll give them grace to examine where they are with you. Do they really know you? Are they relying in rituals and ceremonies to get at church to get them into heaven? Give them grace, Lord, to ask themselves the tough questions, the important questions of life, and to answer them in sincerity and honesty, that they might come to you, Lord, and be saved. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.